Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good evening to all of you. It's a pleasure to be here. Before I begin, I want to say a few words about my good friend and my co-author, Jean Vertifoy, a true CIA legend and icon. As you know, Jean passed away, it will be six years ago at the end of this month, after a relatively short and totally unexpected illness. While she did live to see the book published, we both knew that she would not be able to participate in any success it might enjoy. So I'm here this evening to speak as always for both of us as I tell you about our journey to determine who or what caused the wholesale loss of our Soviet assets in 1985 and in 1986. In 1991, that road led us to search for a traitor in CIA. To make matters worse, we knew he would not be a stranger. He'd be a friend, a colleague, someone we'd probably known for a very long time and someone we saw often in the hallways of our headquarters building. But this is not just a story about how we identified a spy. It's much more than that. For the first time, we are able to share the history of CIA's operational contact with the real heroes, our traitors' victims. Many of their stories are ours as well. We participated in the handling of a number of these cases and we watched as those we knew were arrested and executed. Always concerned that we, CIA, might have made a mistake which led to their deaths is a burden. Trust me, no one ever wants to care. But that's indeed what a few of us in the Soviet and East European Division and in other components in our Directorate of Operations had to do for the next eight years until our mole was uncovered. You may have noticed I've yet to mention his name. We all know who he is. Aldra James, or Rick, as he was known to us. And yes, Rick was a friend. Gene and I had known him for over 20 years. As a matter of fact, Rick and I carpooled back and forth to work in the mid-1970s. And this is the same person who, on April 16, 1985, decided to walk through the front door of the Soviet Embassy, downtown Washington, Washington, D.C., then on 16th Street, and volunteer his services to the Soviet Union. Two months later, Rick made a second decision, and that was to provide his KGB handlers with the names of or identifying information on every single one of our active Soviet assets, as well as those who were dormant or long retired from service. And in doing so, Rick Ames knew exactly what awaited these men. They would be arrested, interrogated, tried, sentenced, and executed. It was a bullet to the back of the head. Before I get into the story, I'd like to give you a little bit of background on the long road of circle of treason. It's the first book either one of us has ever written. 
we certainly never saw ourselves as authors. We were simply two ladies who thought, as did some other people, that we had a story worth sharing. And I will add, we were much older ladies after we were finished. Although Rick was arrested in 1994, we did not begin to write until 2003. And then, four years later, in 2007, we had completed our first draft and submitted it, as required, to CIA's publica Publications Review Board for approval. I have only a brief comment about that experience. It was painful. We went back and forth for a little over three years before we finally had their okay to share our draft with a potential publisher. But we aren't finished with the process. They still had to approve the galleys before the book could go to the printer. That happened on August 15, 2012, 18 years after Rick's arrest, nine years after we had first begun to write, and sadly, and certainly unknown to us at the time, just six weeks before Jean's illness was diagnosed, and three months later, she was gone. Now to the story, which I'm going to begin with what I call a little bit of organizational orientation. Not to worry, no flow charts or org charts. I simply want to introduce you to some of the major players and components involved in the AIM saga. From early 1995 until Rick's arrest in 1994, basically all the action took place within two components in our Directorate of Operations. One was the Soviet East European Division headed by a longtime Soviet operations case officer and former chief of station in Moscow, Burton Gerber. Gerber's right-hand man was Paul Redman, also a longtime Soviet operations case officer and, <coughs> excuse me, who later played a, can you hear? Is that better? Yes. Okay. Raise your hand. This happens to me all the time. All right. Thank you. Um, his Burton's uh, right-hand man was Paul Dillon, as I said, also a longtime Soviet operations case officer who later played a major role in the hunt for the traitor. The second component was the counterintelligence center, also headed by a longtime Soviet operations case officer and former Moscow station chief, the late Gus Hathaway. In early 1985, Rick and I were both assigned to the Soviet East European Division as branch chiefs. My component was responsible for directing all of our operational activity against Soviet and East Europeans in Africa. Rick's branch was responsible for providing mm -hmm. counterintelligence guidance to our geographic units and only on Soviet cases, an important point. Additionally, he and his people did uh, case reviews and wrote papers on the two Soviet intelligence services. The well-known KGB, lesser known until recently, the GRU, the main intelligence directorate of the Soviet general staff. In 1985, Jean, my co-author, was abroad. 
She was serving as chief of station in Libreville, Gabon. Jean does not return to Washington permanently until July of 1986, and in the fall of that year, she's assigned to a very important position, which I will cover a bit later. One last point I'd like to make, because it determines which component takes what action. Within our Directorate of Operations only, the Counterintelligence Center had investigative authority. Soviet East European Division had none. Our job was straightforward. Recruit and handle assets and do so securely. Okay, it's 1985 and our nightmare begins. And I'm going to try and take you through this terrible time in our history pretty much as we experienced it. There were big changes taking place in Moscow in the spring of the year. Specifically, Mikhail Gorbachev assumes power in the country. But back in the Soviet East European Division, CIA headquarters, Langley, Virginia, it's pretty much business as usual. And business is very, very good. It's not an exaggeration to state that we probably knew more about these two organizations, the KGB and GRU, than any single individual assigned to them. As one senior and former KGB officer would tell us years later when talking about this early 85 period, the CIA didn't have just one station in Moscow. They had three. There was the traditional one in the U.S. Embassy. There was a second one in the middle of KGB headquarters. And there was a third one in the middle of GLU headquarters. It is against this backdrop that we have no, I repeat, no indication of our impending human disaster. Late May 1985, GRU Colonel Bokan, whom we're handling in Athens, Greece, tells us he has been ordered to return to Moscow to take care of a problem involving his son, who's attending a military academy there. Bokan contacts his brother, also in Moscow, and he doesn't know of any type of difficulty his nephew is having. Upon hearing this information, we advise Bokan to defect, rather than get on that aircraft. He agrees, and we bring him safely to the United States. Early August, 1985, KGB Colonel and Counterintelligence Officer Paul Estuke is arrested in Moscow during a home leave from Lagos, Nigeria, where we are meeting with him. Uh, and this one is personal. It's my branch that's responsible for handling this operation and ensuring his safety. Additionally, Paulus Dukes and my association went back 11 years earlier to Kathmandu, Nepal, where he agreed to work for us and where I was fortunate to be able to support the operation for an extended period. Late August 1985, GRU officer Smetanin is arrested in Moscow, also during a home leave. In this case, we are meeting with him in Lisbon, Portugal. November 6, 1985, KGB scientific and technical officer Martina, who is assigned to the embassy here in Washington, D.C., 
and who was handled jointly by the FBI and CIA, boards of Airflot flight at Dulles Airport, bound for Moscow. It's anticipated that this is going to be a short trip for Martino, over and back, since he is serving as one of the KGB escort officers for our famous or infamous KGB defector, re-defector, Vitaly Yurchenko, who's on the plane. Martina never returns. Again, early November, 1985. KGB illegal support officer, Barrenik, whom we were meeting in Bonn, West Germany at the time, tells us that he will be traveling to East Berlin to attend a three or four day KGB conference. Not a big deal, he'll be back in time for our next scheduled contact. That's the last time we see Barrenik. 1986, the losses continue. March, our Moscow station officer Mike Sellers is ambushed on his way to meet with our Moscow City Directorate asset, Aronsov. Early June, 1986, as best as we can tell. GRU Colonel Vasilyev is arrested in Moscow, where we were handling it. Our last scheduled contact was a dead drop exchange in December of 1985. There were no security issues. Additionally, we had previously handled the case in Budapest, Hungary, when he was assigned there. Again, a denied area at the time. Again, no security issues. July 7, 1986. GRU General Polyakov is arrested in Moscow one day after his 65th birthday. The general, who is retired from the GRU, is the highest ranking Soviet intelligence officer this country has ever handled. We had over a 20 year history with him. He was known as our crown jewel. And this one is very, very personal. More than half of my 26 year career with the CIA was intertwined with this operation, beginning from the second month after I joined the agency as a 21-year-old recent college graduate who didn't have a clue about the world of spy. And sadly, I have to go into 1987. KGB Colonel Peguzov is arrested in Moscow, and we had been out of touch with him since 1978, when he left Jakarta, Indonesia, on permanent reassignment to the Soviet Union. With the exception of GRU Colonel Bokan, whom we brought from Athens to the US, every single one of the individuals I've named, every one of them, was executed. By the end of 1985, not 1986, and certainly not 1987, there is no question something is seriously wrong. We have lost four active assets in four months with absolutely no satisfactory explanation as to the reason for their arrest or disappearance. It's never happened before in our history. There are two theories. Everybody, would, every, everybody in this room would probably be able to name them. We either have a human penetration of CIA or our communications have been compromised. In other words, 
be reading our traffic. So what do we do? Well, unexpectedly, our first action was triggered by the appearance of a new Soviet asset in January 1986, right in the middle of this mess. Our goal is simple. We've got to try and figure out some way to keep this one alive. Since we don't know whether we have a technical penetration or a human penetration, we have to guard against each. To address the traitor side of the equation, we in the Soviet and East European Division instituted what we simply refer to as draconian security measures. Nothing more than a fancy word to say we severely limited the number of people within CIA all the way up to the leadership who would be told about this new asset to truly a little bit more than one handful. To address the security of our staff communications, we simply did not use them. So how do we communicate? Well, we went back to basics, or Moscow rules, as we used to call it, but with a technical twist. What we did was we sent a headquarters based case officer in alias indirect, indirectly to the new assets location. Once in country, he went nowhere near the U.S. Embassy, and he met the asset in the safe house. After each meeting, our officer would return to his hotel room, where he would transfer his meeting notes to a laptop computer and then encrypt them. After the meeting cycle was completed, he returned to Washington again indirectly, and once back at CIA headquarters, the meeting results would be decrypted. Now, telling you guys, today a laptop with computer with encryption capabilities is certainly not out of the ordinary. But let me tell you, in January 1986, it was cutting edge. And I will also add, and this is based on personal experience, it was the least user-friendly software I have ever <laughs> encountered. Now it's time to reintroduce Jean. As I mentioned, she returned to the States in 86, and in September, she is assigned to the Counterintelligence Center to, uh, as head of a small task force to investigate our, office, our losses and try and determine why they had happened. Now, this was primarily an analytical effort. Jean and her people reviewed all the compromised cases. They looked for patterns. They looked for commonalities. And they put all pertinent, pertinent information into digital format for ease of retrieval. Concurrently, the FBI opened a task force, established a task force of its own to uh, look at the cases they lost in the Soviet arena during the same time period as ours. Gene's group and the Bureau group meet frequently. They exchange information. They exchange ideas. However, after each get-together, whether at our respective headquarters or off-site locations, everybody always came away with far more questions than answers. Okay, where is good old Rick while all this is going on? Well, for 
four years from the fall of 1985 until the fall of 1989. He is basically out of sight, out of mind. In October of 1985, Rick left the Soviet East European Division to attend full-time Italian language training in preparation for an assignment to the U.S. Embassy in Italy. In July 1986, the following year, Rick and his relatively new wife, Rosario, left Washington for Rome. They did not return back permanently until July of 1989, then along with their new young son, Paul. And in September of 1989, Rick is once again assigned to the Soviet East European Division as a branch chief. Now, just to make things a little bit more interesting, as we were trying to stop the hemorrhaging and determine why this disaster had happened, the KGB, still busy with arrests, still busy with executions, initiated the first of two deception operations against us to answer our questions. The first one appeared in January 1986. It was a busy month. This individual we simply named Mr. X, and he literally did appear within a week or a week and a half of our new and legitimate asset for whom we had established the draconian security measures. The second deception operation did not begin until June 1988, and that one continued for just about three years. Uh, we gave this guy an official CIA cryptonym, GT Prohawk. First to Mr. X. He was a self-described KGB officer who volunteered via a letter sent to one of our case officers in Bonn. In Mr. X's first letter, as well as several subsequent ones, he told us, among other things, that we had a mole, and he used the Russian word, uh, located in our large communications facility outside the Washington, D.C. area. Per Mr. X's demands, he was never met but he was provided with barely sizable sums of money via dead drops in East Berlin. Uh, by the fall of 1986, the few of us who are aware of this operation uh, began to believe that Mr. X does not exist. And this has simply, simply been an attempt to get us to look in the wrong direction. We break contact. While I do not like to admit it, the KGB deserves a great deal of credit for the second deception operation. It was absolutely beautifully conceived, run flawlessly, and probably most importantly, they read us perfectly. This case began in, again, June 1988, when a Soviet male approached our chief of station, Moscow, as they were both on the train from Moscow to then Leningrad and he passed an envelope to our COS. Eventually, this individual identified himself as Alexander Zhomov, KGB, internal counterintelligence officer who was assigned to the component in Moscow that ran all operations against our personnel there. Obviously, this would be a great catch for us. In that envelope, passed during the initial encounter, there were several KGB documents. One was of particular importance. 
it was the KGB's assessment of the activities of our Moscow Station personnel from 1984 until the fall of 1986. Certainly a critical period for us. The KGB concluded that there was only one reason for their successes during this period and for our failures. Nothing more than poor tradecraft by CIA Moscow station officers. In other words, it was our fault. Now, what does Mr. Jean-Marc want in return for his continued cooperation? He's got two requests. As might be expected, he wanted money. Large, large, large sums of money. His second request, uh, not an everyday occurrence, uh, but it did have a bit of a surprising twist. He wanted our assistance in leaving the Soviet Union, but only when he told us he was ready to go. Before too long, Jean and I began to believe that Mr. Jomov was probably nothing more than the son of Mr. X, and that this had been a KGB-controlled operation since its inception. However, Despite many tries, over the next couple of years, we are unable to convince the leadership of the Soviet East European Division that we've been had. And the exfiltration of Jomov went forward once he told us he was ready to go. As Jean and I expected, Jomov was a no-show at the pickup point. But he did send us a message. He told us our plan was simply too dangerous and he would have to break contact. So what do we lose here, other than our professional pride? We lost plenty. We gave Jean-Marc a great deal of money, which found its way into the KGB treasury. We also gave the KGB our plans for exfiltrating our assets from the Soviet Union. And for good measure, we threw in a valid U.S. passport. And Again, unknown to us at the time, our participation in this operation resulted in the rapid rise of Mr. Jomov to the highest ranks of the KGB. So here we are. It's the end of the Jomov case, early 1991, and we are no closer to determining what happened to those cases in 85 and in 86 than we were then. This is despite the work of Jean's original task force as well as her subsequent investigative unit. It's also not to say that there weren't leads. There were plenty of them. Each was fully investigated and each was discarded. That's the bad news. But there was some good news. Remember those draconian security measures the Soviet East European Division put into effect in January 1986? They had worked. We had not lost a single new asset since that time, and their numbers had continued to increase. We were once again back in the business of collecting human source reporting on the Soviet Union. That success, however, led some senior officers, not a lot, but some, to conclude that whatever happened in the mid-80s obviously no longer existed wasn't affecting our current operations, and to these same individuals, while it might be nice to know the answer, 
it was of historical interest only. How long they were. Fortunately, not everyone was in the history camp. Jean, in particular, was one of those. Um, she was facing mandatory retirement the following year at the end of uh, 1992, and she still felt guilty that she had not been able to solve our problem. And Jean wanted to spend the rest of her time until retirement taking one more look at the mystery. Now, Jean viewed this as a solitary effort, but that was soon to change. Enter a gentleman, and I'm using the word loosely, named Paul Redman, a dear friend, newly arrived deputy chief of the counterintelligence center. Redman had come from the same job in the Soviet East European division. Jean and I had worked for and with Paul on and off for a number of years. We were friends, we were colleagues, and we had a great deal of professional respect for one another. Shortly after Redmond's arrival in the counterintelligence center, he and Jean went to FBI headquarters to discuss a sensitive matter, totally unrelated to our mutual losses in the mid-80s. After the conclusion of the official business, Redmond just happened to mention Jean was going to take another look at the old problem. The Bureau asked if they could join the effort. He said, sure, why not? That same afternoon, I received a phone call from Paul. He knew I was planning on resigning from the CIA and that only an opportunity to determine why we had lost General Polyakov and Colonel Polischuk would keep me working. I immediately said yes, left the Soviet East European Division, joined Jean and Paul in the counterintelligence center. Um, Approximately two months later, our two FBI colleagues arrived. Special Agent Jim Holt, Soviet analyst Jim Milburn. Uh, as an aside here, Holt had some real skin in this game. He happened to be the FBI case officer on our joint operation involving Martina, who was one of those who was assassinated. Later, we added officially a fifth member to our team. Young CIA Office of Security employee named Dan Payne, and Dan was an extremely valuable addition. It was he who handled all the information and activities related to Ames's um, finances. So as you can see, what later became known as the Ames Moldhunt team really was the creation of Redmond. He was the catalyst and he deserves a great deal of credit for our eventual successes. Additionally, he was one of those who cared most about finding our trigger, having been involved since 1985. While we detail the work of our team uh, in the book, here I'd like to highlight two events that I believe were important and significant in the search for the mole. Before I begin, though, I want to emphasize that at no time during our deliberations, from the very beginning until the very end, did we hide from anyone, and that includes Rick Mills, the fact that we were looking, trying to identify a human penetration of CIA. This was not going to be a paper exercise. How do we start? As it turned out, our approach to this question paid big dividends. 
Um, our first step was simple. Identify all those CIA employees, both current as well as former, who over the years knew about one or more of the cases we lost. After some initial pairing by Jean and myself, that list totaled approximately 160 people. We immediately have a big problem. There is no way you can investigate or we could investigate 160 people without an army. We have got to find some way to prioritize that list. And it's Gene who comes up with a solution. It's very simple. No one would ever call it scientific, but it did work. What we did is we asked or had four members of our original little task force, the two gems from the Bureau, Gene and myself, as well as six others, two from FBI headquarters and four from the CIA to please list the names of five or six people who made them uneasy and whom they believed we should take a close look at. And yes, that is the word we used. No further description. Uneasy. We had a second request. We asked everybody to put their selections in rank order with the one you were most concerned about in first place and you get the draw. Jean and I took the submissions and we assigned a numerical value to each name. Anytime your name appeared in first place, you were awarded six points. Second place, got you five, you get the drill. We totaled the points and in hindsight, what a shock. Can you guess who won this contest? That's right, none other than Rick Ames. He had 21 points. Now. There were also others in double digits, but Rick was the clear winner. And here I am going to pause, I'm going to toot my own horn, and I'm going to quote Gene. And this is a typical Gene expression. Of all those who voted, only Sandy gets the gold star. She had him number one. Now, I do want to admit, let everybody know, we didn't ignore the remainder on our original list of 160. But I will also admit that we did concentrate our efforts on our new shortlist, and eventually Rick became our primary focus. Second, was there a eureka moment in the hunt for the traitor? Yes, there was. And it happened one morning in early August 1992 a little over a year after our task force had been formed. By this time, our efforts were focused on Ames. Dan Payne had been tasked with developing, he had developed a spreadsheet with all the information he had collected on Rick's finances. I had been given the task to develop a chronology of all the information we had on Rick's activities and whereabouts from 1984 until the then present. Uh, it was a document that later turned out to be over 500 pages, text searchable, absolutely mind-numbing to compile. But it did turn out to be a valuable investigative tool. In my research, I came across information that in 1985, Rick, in alias, was attempting to develop a Soviet arms control specialist named Chubakin, who was assigned to the embassy here. Now, Chubakin was just who he said he was. 
arms control specialist. He was not a KGB officer, he was not a GRU officer, and he was not a KGB agent. Additionally, Rick's participation in this activity was not out of the ordinary. In those days, the Bureau simply had insufficient manpower uh, to cover the target. And often, CIA, Soviet East European Division case officers, in between their overseas assignments, would volunteer to help the Bureau out. That's what Rick was doing. His contacts with Chewbacca, or attempted contacts, often, were approved by both organizations and reported to both organizations. Again, nothing out of the ordinary. I simply added the information to the chronology. But that early August 1992 morning, Dan Payne received a package of information from one of the local Virginia banks where Rick and Rosario had a checking account. In that envelope, there were three cash deposit slips signed by Ames. Now, just a reminder here. Rick volunteered on April 16, 1985. The first deposit slip, Dan passes me, is dated May 18, 1985. On this occasion, Rick deposits $9,000 in cash to this checking account. As I'm typing the information into the chronology, I just glance at the line above. Wow, what a coincidence. The day before, on May 17th, he had lunch with Chewbacca. Next deposit slip is dated July 5th, 1985. On this occasion, Rick deposits 5,000 in cash. Obviously, July 4th, day 84, government holiday, the banks are closed. That year, the banks were also closed on July 3rd. July 2nd, Rick has lunch with Chewbacca. The third and final deposit slip we had at that time was dated July 31st, 1985. Rick deposits $8,500 in cash. That very same day, he had lunch with Chewbacca. Well, that's it for Sandy, or as Gene always called it, my epiphany. Uh, I, I shared the correlation I had found with Gene, with the two Jims from the Bureau, and with Dan. And I headed down the hallway to tell Redmond. And here I will again pause and I will apologize in advance for my remarks. They were not particularly ladylike. Anyway, I walk into Redmond's office, I close the door, and before he can say a word, I simply state, it does not take a rocket scientist to see what's going on here. Rick is a damn Soviet spy. Now, I will add that Redmond and I are still arguing over my exact words. But that's not unusual and it's not important. What is important here is this was the first link that would lead to Rick's arrest and conviction. It was cash. It was after meetings with a Soviet national. We finally had a Soviet connection. And in each case, his deposits were below the $10,000 reporting limit that the feds had placed on the banks. In other words, Rick was structuring his deposits. And finally, 
Were Jean and I ever afraid that Rick Ames was going to get away with treason? You bet we were. And it happened in early 1993, as our task force was drawing to a close. A couple of months earlier, November, December of 93, Soviet, uh, excuse me, FBI uh, analyst Jim Milburn was tasked with drawing up our final report. We were turning everything over to the FBI. And while Gene and I certainly had a great deal of input in this report, the final wording was not under our control. Additionally, this was not a CIA document. It was an FBI document. FBI headquarters issued their final report in March of 1993. And, as we understood it, it did not name Rick Ames as our primary suspect. It did, however, include his name on a short list of other potential ones. As you might guess, this was more than a difficult time for us. We were absolutely convinced that Rick Ames was our traitor and that the analysis and information proved that to be correct. However, we now knew that the FBI did not share that and would continue to focus on the others on the new shortlist. We simply saw Rick falling into a bureaucratic hole where he would remain and never be held accountable for the lives he took. To compound the situation, Rick Ames was eligible to retire from the CIA. And knowing him as well as we did, we could easily say, see Rick saying, to heck with all this. I've got plenty of money. Leave as U.S. permanently, along with Rosario and young son Paul, where they had property, where all of her relatives lived, and where we would never be able to touch him. Luckily, though, and I use the word luckily, and I'm going to choose my words very carefully here. In 1993, additional information became available. It did not identify Rick Ames as our traitor, but it certainly pointed in his direction. Most importantly, it forced the FBI to open a full-scale investigation of Rick Ames to include all means of electronic surveillance at their disposal. About a year later, February 21st, President's Day, government holiday, an FBI team arrested Rick around the corner from his home in Arlington as he was on his way to CIA headquarters to respond to an incoming cable. My guess the cable did not exist. It was simply a ruse to get him out of the house. A short time later, his wife, Rosario, was arrested at their home. Eventually, they both pled guilty to espionage. Rosario was sentenced to six years, five of which she served in a federal facility in Danbury, Connecticut. Upon her release, she was stripped of her U.S. citizenship and deported to Colombia. Rosario was a naturalized citizen, which was one of CIA, CIA's requirements that she had to fulfill before she could marry Ames. 
Rick was sentenced to life. He initially was sent to the uh, federal penitentiary in Allenwood, Pennsylvania, where he remained until about two and a half, maybe three years ago, when he was transferred from Allenwood to the federal penitentiary in Terre Haute, Indiana, where he will presumably spend the rest of his natural life. I'd like to leave you with one final thought. As I mentioned very early, the real heroes are our dead assets. Quite frankly, Jean and I would never have sought to have published Circle of Treason if CIA's review board had not allowed us to tell their stories in what we considered sufficient detail. As citizens, none of us should ever forget when these brave men agreed to work for the United States government, they put their lives in our hands, and we, CIA, as your representatives, failed them. We could never repay them for their sacrifices, or think about it, their families for their losses. But we did owe each and every single one an answer as to why this horrible thing had happened. We could do nothing less. And lastly, I want to thank you for your attention, and I will be glad to answer any questions you might have. Thank you.